0: Amen. Well, good morning, church. Certainly is a pleasure to gather together once again on the Lord's Day. Thankful for all of you who are here this morning. Uh, To our visitors, if you're visiting with us for the first time, we are thankful to have you here with us. As Pastor Gabe mentioned, make sure you scan that QR code and uh, give us your information so we can steal your identity later. Just kidding. So we can connect with you because... That's what we want to do here is be the body of Christ, love on others. So thank you for joining us this morning. For those that may not know me, my name is Brandon Reed, and I have the uh, honor and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here and elders here at Christ's Covenant Fellowship. Hey, listen, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do turn with me to John chapter 6. Uh, we've been going through the study of John, the book of John, for the last, I mean, pretty much this whole entire year. Um, And here we are, John chapter 6. Listen, if you don't have a Bible, there's a few on the table back here to my left, which would be your right. So make sure you grab one before you leave. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, This morning, we will be in John chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 30 through 36 this morning. And so throughout history, there have been a lot of controversial figures, than monarchs, military leaders, politicians, philosophers, and entertainers, many different sorts. But no one has created more controversy, more debate, more division than this man from Nazareth named Jesus Christ. See, of his 33 years here on earth, Jesus only spent three in the public ministry. But he did a lot of things in those three years. He healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he walked on water, Jesus even raised the dead. In fact, John tells us in chapter 21, verse 25, he says this, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So that tells us Jesus did a lot of wonderful and miraculous things, things that people loved and admired. You see, the great majority of people, they loved the things that Jesus did. They enjoyed them. They even benefited from his miraculous works. You see, it's the things that Jesus said that provoked the ire of his opposers. See, the words of Jesus can be so jarring. They consistently dismantle our assumptions about God and himself. You see, Jesus' discourses, his sermons, aren't motivational. They're unsettling. And as we approach this text before us this morning, we find that Jesus is going to say some things that upset this crowd. Jesus continues to engage with this crowd of sign-seeking followers to challenge their motivations, to challenge their allegiances. And he does so by presenting to them in no uncertain terms that he is the way to life. See, Jesus here begins to draw their attention away from the physical or away from their material need. He draws their attention away from their earthly way of understanding things, and he begins to put the emphasis where it belongs on the only thing that can eternally satisfy and redeem the human soul, and that is Christ Jesus. You see, throughout this discourse in John chapter 6, Jesus says some hard truths. He's going to say some things that this group of followers, they're not really fond of hearing. They don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. As I stated, they loved what he did. They just didn't like what he said. See, Jesus' words are an offense to many, yet Jesus' words are very encouraging to some. They're a blessing to those of us who are in Christ Jesus, amen? His words can be jarring and offensive to others while very encouraging to others. You see, unfortunately, what we find is for this crowd who is dead in their sins, who is overcome by their condition of spiritual blindness, they don't have the ability to see Christ in all of his majesty. They don't have the ability to see him as Lord and Savior and understand that he is the promised Messiah. Therefore, because of their unbelief, they will ultimately reject Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, here Jesus makes some profound statements, statements that we must address, statements about himself, about salvation, and about life, truths that every man and woman must reckon with. Listen, I want to just be up front with you right now. I want to show my hand, if you will. I want you, everyone in here, to wrestle with the implications of this text and what Jesus is going to say here. I want every person in here to consider Jesus, to ponder on what he has to say and render a verdict about Christ. Listen to the church, to my brothers and sisters in this room. I hope that as we read this text, this would only solidify your faith in Jesus Christ, that this passage would be yet another demonstration of the divine glory of our Savior, and that this would lead you to respond to a deeper and greater devotion and dependence on Christ Jesus. But to everyone else in this room, to anyone in here this morning that may not know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, my hope is that God would be at work during this time doing what only he can do, opening hearts, ears, and eyes to receive Jesus, that through the preaching of the word that uh, minds would be renewed and that hearts would be changed. And that for those in this room who don't know Jesus, you would see him in all of his saving glory for the first time this morning. That is my hope. That is my aim. So as we look at these passages together, I have a very simple outline. It's just two points or two sections. For those of you who are taking notes, this will be our two points or our two sections as we consider these verses. Number one will be the demand of the people. The demand of the people, and we'll see that in verses 30 and 31. Number two, we'll see the response of Jesus. The response of Jesus, and that'll be in verses 32 through 36. Again, this is a really simple outline, but I think it's a helpful way of kind of breaking this text down. So, let's walk through these verses together. So, again, the first point or the first section is the demand of the people. Listen, if you recall last week, Pastor Tyler did a beautiful job walking us through verses 22 through 29. And in those verses, Jesus is calling this crowd to believe in him. See, Jesus has challenged them not to seek or pursue the food that perishes, but to seek what endures to eternal life. See, here the Lord Jesus is once again inviting them to be more than seekers of the sensational or the material. He's inviting everyone in the crowd to look to him in faith, to be beneficiaries of his saving grace, partakers of eternal life that only he can provide. And they respond to Jesus, though, and they ask him here or there a bit of a loaded question. They say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And, of course, Jesus, who is more than happy to oblige to engage with this group in conversation, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So Jesus essentially says to this crowd, listen, if you really want to know what you must do to be right before God, to be justified before your creator, you must believe in me. You see, Jesus points them to the fundamental message of the gospel that men are justified only through faith in Christ. And what a beautiful reminder that is to all of us. There's just this incredible freedom and peace that comes with that glorious truth that we can rest and trust in our Savior and all that he's accomplished. The burden for salvation doesn't rest on my shoulders or yours. Praise God. Amen? Amen. So unfortunately for this crowd, though, they're unsatisfied with that response. See, the crowd continues to press in on Jesus and they question him further. In verse 30, they reply, Well, then, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? See, now this crowd has shifted their thinking a little bit. They begin to demand this sign in response to Jesus' claim about himself in verse 29. You see, they're demanding some sort of evidence, some sort of proof to justify their belief in Jesus Christ. They need some sort of evidence that would lead them to say, yes, we can believe you are the one that God has sent. Now, I want you to keep in mind what they had just witnessed the day before. So you got to remember that this is coming off the heels of Jesus's miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Now, you would think that that display of Christ's power and divinity would have been enough for them. But see, their demand for a sign only serves to demonstrate their blindness, their lack of perception, their lack of understanding. You see, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. He had not only done that, but if you recall, he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. He had also healed the official's son. He had turned water to wine but they wanted more. They still did not believe in Jesus. And isn't this the problem with unbelief? It's never satisfied. You know, I think about some of the conversations I've had over the years with atheists or with unbelievers, and you can reason with them logically through science, through creation, to the existence of God. You can even point them to uh, uh, archaeology and the findings of uh, these historians that support biblical accounts. You can even point them to the text itself and show where it fulfills specific prophecies, but it's never enough for them. They just continue to move the goalpost, right? They need more. It's what Paul calls suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's the condition of the unregenerate heart, one that is cold and dead to the reality of Christ Jesus, a heart that's untouched by the gospel of grace, cannot believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is where we are dependent on that divine intervention, for God to bring alive what is dead. That's the only hope we have of believing in Jesus rightly. See, the condition of this crowd were those who were still dead spiritually. See, they're captivated by the miraculous and blind to the truth. And so what do they do? Now they're questioning Jesus like, buddy, we need to see some credentials. You got to do something. You got to do something here, Jesus. So they're requesting that he do something to show that he is the one that God has sent. They want him to do something to show that he's worthy of their belief and devotion. So what do they ask him to do? What would be the sign that they're going to demand from Jesus? Well, as we look at the text, it appears that they kind of have in mind what Jesus had just done the day before with the fish and the loaves. That's what they're seeking here, this sign that they had just benefited from. Let's look at verse 31. And it says, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here, what do they do? They point to a story that I'm sure many of us in here are familiar with, but if you're not, it's, If we go back to the book of Exodus and God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he's carrying them through the wilderness and they begin to grumble because they're hungry, they're mad at Moses, like, man, why did you bring us here to die? At least if we stayed in Egypt, we would have had plenty of food to eat, our bellies would have been full. So what does God do? He goes to Moses, he says, look, I'm going to rain down manna from heaven. I'm going to send bread every single day so that all the people can gather and eat and be satisfied. So they're kind of pointing back to this. God says, I'm going to satisfy the hunger of the people as they travel towards the promised land. So what is the connection here? Right? So it appears that this crowd believes essentially that Moses is greater than Jesus. He had their, they had uh, the allegiance of Moses. They were uh, tied to him. So they're telling Jesus, listen, if you want our allegiance as well, if you want us to believe in you, you got to at least do what Moses did or something even greater, right? Moses was able to provide for us every single day. We had bread. Look, you gave us fish sandwiches yesterday. We need some more today, right? You got to provide for us today. You got to show us that you're greater than Moses. Listen, there was a belief Uh, with many rabbis in that day that even would come after Jesus, that uh, the second or the Messiah that would come or what they called the second redeemer would do exactly what Moses did. So there was a belief that just as Moses rained down manna from heaven, that this savior or this prophet that God would raise up, a Moses-like prophet, would do the exact same thing. So that's their expectation. They're expecting Jesus, you have to at least do this for us to believe in you. And not just one time, buddy. We need it every day. You got to provide for us consistently if you want us to believe in you. See, this is the problem with this crowd. This is their issue. They didn't want a Messiah that would deliver them from sin and redeem their souls. They just wanted Jesus to do a repeat performance of what he had done the day before. They just wanted their... Bellies full. They didn't want Christ. They had no desire for him. They just wanted him to make their lives more comfortable and convenient. I mean, that's why they attempted to make him king. I mean, what a useful king he would be, right? He can heal all of our diseases. He can feed us consistently. He can free us from the tyranny of Rome. That's the kind of Messiah and king that they wanted. Never mind a Messiah that could free them from the tyranny of sin. That's what they should have been concerned with. But see, that wasn't Jesus' purpose. It's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to just meet all of their physical needs. See, Jesus had a singular focus. So he couldn't demand or, or I should say acquiesce to the demand of this crowd. He couldn't give in to what they were asking him for, or he would be compromising his mission. He couldn't act as this political or social messiah. See, what Jesus says here really shatters any expectations that this crowd has of Jesus as a social reformer. Listen, let's stop there for just one second. Listen, there are a lot of people who love social justice Jesus, don't they? Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to reform society. He came to redeem sinners. Listen, we need to get this right, church, because this is essential. Listen, in Christ Jesus, God has saved and redeemed sinners. And for us as believers, listen, God has given us this wonderful ministry as believers. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is what he says. He says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, you may ask yourself, why do I cite those verses right here? Because I think those verses give us a clear depiction of God's purpose for sending his son into the world to forgive the sins and trespasses of mankind so that we could be counted as the righteousness of God. These verses say nothing about fixing society. Listen, Jesus didn't come just to make your life better. He didn't come to just solve all the world's problems or make the world a better place because he's this magnificent moral teacher. He came to free you from the eternal consequence of sin and restore you to right relationship with God. That's why Jesus came. That is the Messiah that we must preach. Listen, a lot of us have a wonderful opportunity this week. As we travel for Thanksgiving and we sit down with family members, extended family that we normally wouldn't get time with, listen, this is the Jesus you must preach. Amen? Amen. Not Jesus the Republican, not Jesus the Democrat, not Jesus the social justician. It is Jesus the glorious Savior and Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the world. That is what we must preach. Sadly for for this crowd, they were buried under the weight of their spiritual blindness and they couldn't see Jesus this way. They could not see him in his saving glory. They had no desire for him. Instead, they're just seeking the sensational. They are solely focused on the signs, not the significance of the sign, not the sign giver, the Savior Jesus Christ. So they demand, what are you going to do? What works do you perform? All right, you claim to be the one sent by God. You're telling us to believe in you. All right, buddy, what are you going to do to prove it? You got to do something. So how does Jesus respond to their demands? How does he respond to their question? Well, we'll look at verses 32 through 36, and this shifts to our second section, or our second point. This is the response of Jesus. Let's look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, let's stop right there for a minute, because Jesus says something here that's of incredible significance. And we know that because of the way that Jesus prefaces this statement. He says, truly, truly. Now, anytime you see that, especially off the lips of Jesus Christ, that means we must pay attention That means that the statement that follows can be trusted and affirmed. Jesus is adding emphasis. He's exercising a level of assertiveness with whatever he's about to say. So Jesus, what does he say here? He actually reminds them of a glorious truth that they had neglected. Jesus says it wasn't actually Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It was God the Father You see why this is important? See, for this group, particularly for the Pharisees amongst the group, they had this great affinity for Moses. They loved Moses. In fact, if you recall back in chapter 5, as Jesus issues this rebuke to the Jews, to the Pharisees, he says, do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. See, these guys loved Moses. They worshiped him. In fact, if you go forward to John chapter 9 and the encounter where Jesus gives sight to the blind man, they identify themselves as disciples of Moses, right? They rebuke the guy and say, hey, you're, you're one of his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. So they loved Moses. They trusted in him. But what Jesus shows them here is that the glory they've ascribed to Moses is actually misplaced. says, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread. It was God. See, if you recall in Exodus 16, 4, uh, God and Moses are having a conversation and God says to Moses this. says, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather. So who is it that sent the bread? Who is it that provides? It's God. See, Moses was just a messenger. He just relayed the instructions that God had given to him. It was God that had provided for them. Now, let's again, we can pause right here for a second and make a really simple personal application. Listen, how often are we like this crowd? How often do we rob God of the glory that he is due? I mean, I want you to think about some of the things that happen in our lives that are demonstration of God's faithfulness and manifestations of his loving provision. And what do we do? We attribute the glory to men, or worse, we give it to ourselves. Right? As human beings, man, we just love to be glorified, don't we? We love that pat on the back. We love to glorify ourselves. You know, I was uh, looking at something not too long ago, and there was a, a video of, Uh, this actress, and she comes up on stage to receive an award. And she gets up there and she says, "Uh, you know, when people usually get up here to receive these awards, they they thank Jesus for helping them and all he's done in their life. And then she says, I just want you to know, no one has helped me less to win this award than Jesus. He had nothing to do with it. And then the crowd explodes in laughter as she openly mocks our Lord and Savior. And I'm thinking to myself, this woman has no idea how incredibly blessed she is, that even as an unbeliever, God would graciously bless her life. She has no idea that even winning that award was a gift of God's common grace, that he even shows that to unbelievers, right? But these men, this group, they had forgotten that everything comes from God. Remember in John chapter 3 that John the Baptist, he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. Brothers and sisters, God provides all things. Every single thing, all that we have, all that we are, has been given to us by Creator God. Let us always be careful to give him the glory that he is due. Amen? So it was God that had provided them with manna in the wilderness. But I want you to catch this. More importantly, it is God who had given them the bread of life and the living water that is Christ Jesus. See, after reminding them here that it is God who provided for their fathers, see, Jesus now begins to shift the conversation really to the heart of the matter. He begins to establish this essential piece to understanding the importance of this entire discussion. Look at the second half of verse 32, and we'll look at verse 33 as well. And Jesus says, "'It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven.'" For the bread of God is what? He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And this is an incredibly loaded statement. I love that Jesus has the ability to say so much in very few words. Notice what Jesus says here. He says it is he who comes down. He who comes down from heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder. It's not about what they need. It's about who they need. He is pointing this crowd to something far greater than any physical provision can sustain. Jesus is teaching them that the manna from heaven is actually him, that he is the true bread says my father gives true bread from heaven now the greek word that's used in the text for gives is used in the present tense so what that indicates is that the true bread from heaven is not the manna given in the past but what god the father is currently supplying to them through the son jesus christ but they can't see that they don't get it it's lost on them they're blind See, Jesus is attempting to show them that he is the way to everlasting life. See, commentator D.A. Carson is helpful here when he says this, quote, Jesus is beginning to transition from the thought that he provides the true bread from heaven to the thought that he is the true bread from heaven, end quote. See, again, this is what they're missing. This is what they don't understand, Through Jesus, the bread of life is how they have life. And so what Jesus shows us here, too, is that this bread from heaven, this bread of God is superior to physical bread in at least two ways. I'm just going to give you two briefly here. Number one, physical bread only sustains physical life while the bread of God gives spiritual life, so the Greek word that's used here is Zoe, which John uses multiple times throughout his gospel to describe spiritual life, not physical life. There are several references that I'll give you. I'm not going to read them all. You can just write them down and go back and them, read them later. It's John 1:4, John 5:29, John 6:53. John 10:10 10, 10, and John 14:6 just to name a few. So again, this bread from heaven or this bread of God gives a spiritual life, not just simply a physical life. It is true and lasting eternal life that we get from Jesus Christ, which every man needs more than food and water. Right? So not only is it superior in that way, but number two, it's superior. And this is so good. It's superior because it gives life to the world. See, if you think about the man in the wilderness, God gave that to the Israelites. But guess what? He gives Jesus to the whole world. And everyone in here that wasn't an Israelite said amen. Right? Because that means you and I can be saved. See, Jesus says he comes down and gives life to the world. Look, there are a million texts I could point to that talk about God's ability and desire to save all nations. But if you really want to get a good picture of it, man, I'm just going to tell you, go read the book of Acts or any of Paul's New Testament letters, right? This manna, this bread, I should say, this true bread is available to all who believe. It's greater than any physical bread. And here Jesus is offering this to this crowd, to this group of people. They have no desire for it. They don't care. They just want the physical, the material. They want their bellies full. They want to be satisfied. They want things to be comfortable and convenient. And once again, when we get to verse 34 here. It shows that they are still in their spiritual blindness. It's evidence of really how dense they are because this is what they say to him. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Now, this may sound like a sincere response on its face, but there's a superficial interest here. See, after first demanding that he show them some sign, now they're demanding, Look, give us what we want. Just give us what we want. Give us this bread always. Listen, this crowd here, this is not them exercising faith in Jesus Christ. See, this can be likened to the woman at the well and the response that she gives to Jesus. If you recall back in John chapter 4, Jesus has the encounter with the Samaritan woman and he's offering her living water. She says, sir, give me this water always so that way I don't have to keep coming back to this well. Like she totally misses his point. It's the same with this group. They've missed the point. They don't understand what Jesus is telling them. They lack understanding. And so because of that, Jesus says, okay, I'm just going to say it plainly to you. So in verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Unambiguous, no questions about it. It's me, right? Since you guys just don't get it, it's me. I am the bread of life. Of life, and what a monumental statement this really is. See, this is the first of the seven "I am" statements found in the Gospel according to John. See, seven times Jesus says "I am," and then he attaches some metaphor to that "I am" statement that speaks to his uh, to salvation and his saving relationship with the world. You see, the phrase I am would have been significant as it was the divine name that Yahweh used for himself as he reveals himself to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. God says to Moses, I am who I am. So when Jesus uses that phrase, that terminology, I am, these, these folks would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. right? And the more he used it, the angrier they got. It only led to more hostility, And ultimately, to his crucifixion, so they started to understand his claims of deity. But here's Jesus first introducing these I am statements. And he says, I am the bread of life. And again, they totally missed what Jesus was trying to say here because they were only concerned with having full bellies, meanwhile, having empty hearts. See, they just wanted Jesus to feed them again to provide another miracle. But listen, Jesus isn't going to let them remain uninformed. He's not going to allow them to continue to overlook the implications of the sign or the meaning of his words. See, Jesus tells them plainly listen, I am the bread that I promised to you back in verse 27. It's me. I am the bread of life. Listen, everything that your soul desires, all that you're looking to satisfy with the things that you're seeking and pursuing is found in me fully, completely, eternally. Listen, Jesus states it plainly for them. And I want to make sure I state it plainly for you. Listen, there is nothing in all of existence. You could search the depths of the seas. You could journey to the end of the universe. Nothing will eternally satisfy, sustain, and complete the human soul other than Jesus Christ. That's what you were made for is a relationship with God. If you are pursuing complete and eternal satisfaction apart from Jesus Christ, it is an exercise in futility. Period. We are to seek Christ Jesus above all others. And I pray that we would be a people like King David when he writes in Psalm 63-1. This is what David says. Psalm 63-1, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Brothers and sisters, is this the way that you desire the Lord? Is this the way we seek and pursue Christ Jesus? Or is it simply for the superficial? You know, over time, I've I've found myself trying to pray this more. God, I want to thirst for you like one who is in a desert, the way I pursue all of these other things in life, all the things that I get excited and riled up about, that I feel like I have to have. God, do I want you that way? And I pray that I do. And I pray that we as a people, as God's people, would seek and pursue Christ Jesus that way as well. See, what this text really points to, Jesus calling himself the bread of life, this really speaks to the all sufficient and all satisfying nature of Christ. That's why Jesus says here, He says, Whosoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Don't miss that. Listen, Jesus isn't saying that you'll never be hungry or you'll never be thirsty again. What He's saying is you don't have to look anywhere else to have those longings satisfied. It's all fulfilled in me. He is the bread of life that eternally sustains. Every longing of the human soul is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And I love what Jesus does here. I love this beautiful gospel invitation that Jesus calls all those who are thirsty, calls all those who are hungry to come to him. What a beautiful and gracious invitation he extends to this crowd of people. He says, you can turn to me and those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, and be eternally satisfied. This is very reminiscent of what the uh, prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 55, which Pastor Tyler just read for us. But I love, this is one of my favorite passages and it's one of the clearest uh, invitations to salvation that you're going to find in the Old Testament. And I just want to read this quickly. This is verses 1 through 3, Isaiah 55, and this is what it says. It says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David." Man, what a beautiful piece of Scripture that ties perfectly to what we're discussing right here. I mean, look at the language, thirsting, eating. Why do you spend your money for that which does not satisfy? See, that's what Jesus is challenging them on right here. Why are you pursuing these things that will not eternally satisfy? If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me for eternal satisfaction, for fulfillment of the soul. See, here's Christ Jesus, the bread of life, standing before this group of people, and he's offering them the gift of salvation. He's inviting them to be beneficiaries of God's steadfast love, to be right before the Lord through him. As brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's greatest and ultimate provision. He is who satisfies and sustains mankind. Listen, Jesus is the true bread. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, the Torah that these men held to so dearly. Jesus is the true and better Moses. Jesus is greater than the temple that they found themselves standing in having this conversation, the temple that they worshiped in regularly and that they esteemed so highly. Jesus is infinitely greater than all of those things. But they couldn't believe, they couldn't see that for themselves. That's why in verse 36 Jesus says, you have seen what you do not believe. So here Jesus offers this warning of rebuke, and this is a reminder to all of us that seeing isn't always believing. See, they've seen Jesus perform these mighty works but they haven't seen him as the revelation from God the Father sent into the world for the salvation of men. They've seen the sign, but they've missed the sign giver. They've missed its significance. You see, their appetites were awakened, but not their faith, not their faith in Jesus Christ. And unfortunately, the reality is that there are many in danger of this today. They come into these church services or they read their Bible and they hear these miraculous, wonderful things that God is doing, but their hearts are not alive to Jesus as Lord and Savior. They're simply seeking what God can do for them. God, how can you make my life better? How can you improve my situation? Listen, the Lord Jesus gets no honor in that. He's not here to simply improve our circumstances. He came to deliver us from the eternal consequences of sin, to redeem mankind so that we are reconciled to God, the Creator. Jesus has come and given his life graciously, lovingly, so that those who look to him in faith have eternal life, forgiven of sins and all of our trespasses. Don't miss the giver because you're focused on the gift. You know, as we prepare to close our time, I think it's really simple what we can take away from this passage, really simple application. And that is that Jesus Christ is the means to eternally sustain and satisfy our souls. I want to end our time by just asking a couple of questions, posing a few questions to everyone in here. First, to all of you who are in this room, who identify as Christians, who say that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would ask you, brothers and sisters, do you believe that Jesus is better? Are you seeking him above the things? Do you live as though Jesus truly is the bread of life? Do your priorities reflect that? Do the way, does the way that you live your life, the things you seek and pursue, does it reflect that? That Jesus is greater? Are you pursuing Christ in a way that demonstrates that he alone is enough? Brothers and sisters, are you feeding on the bread of life daily as you feed on physical food? Are you dependent on the sustenance that is Christ Jesus as you would be on bread and water? Are you depending on him that way? See, brothers and sisters, we just sang about it, right? There is no more for heaven to give because he's given us Jesus Christ, his son. That is all that we need. He is the bread of life. Are we pursuing him that way? See, listen, we don't need to turn to men. We don't need to turn to the world to find the way of life. We don't need to seek worldly philosophies or riches or temporal satisfactions. See, God in his grace has provided for us fully and eternally through the bread of life that is Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that this morning? My next charge would be to anyone in the room that isn't a believer in Jesus Christ. I want you to know that Christ has been, or Christ is available. And he's made available to you this glorious offer of salvation to everyone. As he says, he gives life to the world. Anyone can come to Christ in faith. You have the opportunity right here this morning. Listen, you may be in this room and you hear us preach about Christ or maybe you've been to some churches. It's like, man, you guys just think you're better than us. I'm here to tell you right now, I'm no better than you. Even as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm not better than you. I'm simply a beggar who's found bread and I'm trying to show you where to find the same when I say we found bread, I don't mean leftovers. I don't mean table scraps or crumbs. We found the bread of life who is Jesus Christ, who eternally redeems and satisfies the soul of mankind. And that can be, that is available to all who are in this room this morning. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ yet, I would urge you, challenge you, exhort you to do so right now. Again, Jesus says, whoever comes, those who are thirsty, those who are hungry, come to me and live. Salvation is freely available to all. We're reminded of the beautiful, saving glory of Lord Jesus Christ in these verses, and it's just a great, great reminder. If you are in here this morning again and don't know Jesus or you want to pray and maybe God's working on your heart right now, I'm going to... Go ahead and pray. So, But what I want to do is give everybody in here just about 30 seconds. Everyone, head closed, eyes bowed, whatever. I'm not doing the altar call thing, but I do want to give you an opportunity to respond. I do want to give everybody in here an opportunity to just pray, to think about what we talked about just now, and to reckon, to wrestle with these things that we discussed. So I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of silence to just pray where you are, And I'm going to pray and end our time. Father in heaven, we are thankful. We're thankful for your provision. Thankful that though we are sinful human beings who have rebelled against you, who are blind, who are foolish, who are ignorant to the truth often, that you've given your son, Jesus Christ, the bread of life to redeem sustain our souls father I'm thankful for that truth this morning Jesus we are thankful that you came you lived you died you rose again and that in you Lord Jesus we have life we are free we are forgiven father I pray for everyone in this room I pray for uh, this church this body of believers that gathers Lord, help us to see the sufficiency of Christ to see him as greater. Lord, help us to be daily dependent on you, not just for the physical or the material, but to keep and preserve our souls as we await for the day of our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray for everyone in here who may not be in saving relationship with you. Lord, I pray that even as we read through these verses and we had this time together, that you would do the work of opening hearts, God, that they wouldn't walk out of this room the same way that they came in. If they would see Jesus, Lord, open their eyes to see Christ as greater, as infinitely greater. They would have a desire to come to you and live, to lay down their sin and rebellion and find freedom, hope, and peace in Christ. Lord, only you can do that. Only you can change hearts and renew minds. So I'm praying that you would do that even right now as we speak, as we pray. Father, and above all, I pray that you would be glorified in us, that even with the rest of the time we have here together in this service, we would be a blessing to you. We would lift you up and praise your name. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.